So last week, I asked a sensitive question. Why did you become a Christian? And I mentioned a couple of things. Some of us are born into a Christian family. We don't know anything else. Uh, some of us come to, know, come to faith during a time of crisis. Uh, some of us, though, primarily became a Christian because we have a fear of death and the unknown of the afterlife. Last week, we talked a little bit about what if we became a Christian because we saw in Jesus how to be a better person, and we want to become a better person and throw off the shackles of a lot of the junk in the trunk that we carry with us through the course of our life. So we put that um, in place last week. And I think to set up what I want to share with you today, I want to remind you that all religions, not just Christianity, often use fear as a means of control. And what we find is as long as you can keep people fearful and afraid of what's coming, well, then you have the power to grow, you have the power to control, you have the power to even become prosperous. And now, in order for religions a lot of times to keep that, they need some source of authority that they can hold over other people's heads. In other words, Usually in all religions, there's some type of a holy book or a set of scriptures that are often used. Now, most religions, if not all, claim that this book or these scriptures come from God. So how can you argue with God, right? And so when people then use that, they can insist that you follow a, a certain way because that's what their scripture says. Now, our scripture we call the Bible. And most churches, if not all, use the Bible in one way or another as a source of revelation, but also the authority to determine a lot of different things. Many times it's used to determine who's in and who's out. Sometimes it determines who will be blessed and who won't be blessed. Now, what we find, though, is when you actually open the Bible, there is all kinds of various interpretations of this thing that we call the Scriptures. You see, the Bible does not really say anything. I mean, you leave it on a table, it doesn't do a thing. It's only as you read it that it says something. Now, once you begin to read something, you are also interpreting. You do that in everything you read. You pick up a newspaper or a magazine, you look at a website page, whatever it is, once you start to engage with the written text, you are starting to interpret it as to what it means to you. Isn't it amazing that two people could read the same article or read the same book or uh, even watch the same television show and walk away with a completely different emphasis or meaning? Why is that? Because a part of who we are is to take the information that comes our way, engage with it, and use our lens, how we experience the world, to interpret that information. So people, when they open the scripture and they say, God says, they fail to understand, I think, that 
God might be saying something, but it's coming through your filter. Are you following what I'm saying? And as you look at it, your filter, which is is determined by a lot of different things, has a way to begin to cipher that which is an ongoing relevance to our life or possibly push it aside. So you can read portions of the Old Testament and you go, what's with all these rules about sacrificing? That doesn't have anything to do with me. And you very easily just kind of push that aside. But other things, maybe the teachings of Jesus or something else, you begin to say, oh, there's something here that I can apply to my current situation. Now, the Bible can be a thing of great beauty and blessing. It can be something that can be very dangerous at the same time. Now, most people don't have a clue as to how the Bible came together. It's a very long process. It's very hard for the church to come to a consensus of which books they're going to keep, which books they're going to continue to copy. So many people don't know even what's in the Bible, for that matter. Um, Most people think that the Bible is all about the afterlife. Okay, It's all about how we get into heaven after we die. That's about, hmm, this is being generous, about 5% of the Bible. 95% of the Bible is about other things. It's about concerns of people that wrote it and the people that they are writing to. If you actually read the Bible, you will find that it's not a book at all. It's a library. It's 66 books in the Protestant tradition. It's more than that in the Catholic tradition. But if you actually read the Bible, you're going to find that in this library, there are numerous authors over a long period of time in a bunch of different contexts, circumstances, and cultures as well. The oldest part of the Bible, the Old Testament, is about 3,000 years old. The New Testament is about 2,000 years old. So there is this huge gap between them and us. And the way that they look at the world is very different. As we are separated by these thousands of years, these writers are writing in a different context with a different set of circumstances and certainly in a different culture. And that's why reading the Bible, interpreting the Bible, and applying the Bible is very, very difficult to do. In the early centuries of the church, there were creedal statements that helped the church determine what they believed. We say some of them. One of the things that we recite every so often is the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed came together even before the New Testament came together. So this kind of worked well for the early years of the church until the days of the Reformation. And during the days of the Reformation, which is a little over 500 years ago, there was a group of uh, theologians and and pastors that began to say sola scriptura. Now what what that means is only scripture. And so Martin Luther and John Calvin and others began to say, hey, a lot of the traditions that developed in the Catholic Church 
Um, they're not biblical. You can't find chapter and verse, so we're going to only stick with the Bible. Now, this led to a break from the Roman Catholic Church, and Protestantism, that is, a protest, began. Now, what's fascinating to me is in the last 500 or so years, when Protestant came into being, they've determined to use the Bible alone as a source of faith and practice. However, have you noticed that they couldn't agree either? And that's why one denomination after another developed. Do you realize there's over 100,000 different denominations in the Protestant tradition? Now that should tell you something about how difficult it is to engage with the text. And, and people can't agree, and since they can't agree, they, did, they start their own grouping, a denomination. And they might agree that we're all brothers and sisters in the faith. However, there's always a little bit of self-righteousness that's going on. I, we got it right. They didn't get it right. We got it right. Okay. Now this leads me to a second very sensitive question. And I mentioned it earlier in the service. Well, what is the Bible and what do we do with it? What is the Bible and what do we do with it? So you can approach this in a variety of ways. You remember a few weeks back, I told you that we all have, are in different stages of faith, from simplicity to complexity to perplexity to humility. The same thing is true in the Bible as well. And that is, a lot of people look at it very simplistically. And, that, and what I mean by that is, you might hear there's an, a, a, a simple Sunday school song that goes back many, many years. It, it goes something like this, the B-I-B-L-E, that's the book for me. I stand alone on the Word of God, the B-I-B-L-E, okay? I stand alone on the Word of God, the B-I-B-L-E. Uh, it's pretty simplistic, okay? In other words, it does not, it, it tends to take the Bible literally, but not real seriously. Now, what I mean by that is you cannot enter into the text and read it without interpreting it. And as you engage it, you're going to find there's different rooms of interpretation you're going to find as well that you shouldn't take the Bible literally in every case. Remember when Jesus said, um, hey, if you are lusting after somebody else, gouge your eye out. Remember that? Now, it's fascinating to me that groupings of people that say, I take the Bible literally, will kind of jump over that. They won't take that one literally, right? Okay. No, it's more important to take the Bible seriously than it is to take it literally. Now, that leaves room for different genres, that is, different types of literature and different figures of speech and metaphor and all that type of thing. The other thing is, a lot of times people get all out of shape with which translation of the Bible you use. So certain churches go, hey, we're a King James only church. Well, that's wonderful. Why? Well, if it was good enough for the Apostle Paul, it's good enough for me. Uh, King James Bible was translated in 1611. Uh, 
hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years after the time of the Apostle Paul. So in other words, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Translations are always improving. And one thing I will guarantee you is that translations will continue to be published. That's not going to go away. Because the more that we know about culture and context and languages, what we will find is that we are better able to translate accurately what is in the text. Okay, so a lot of this is just some things that I wanted to kind of cover with you, but here's what I want to do for the rest of our time. So when we read 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 earlier, Remember how it goes? All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, that one verse has been used in many different ways. And that is, it is to take every verse in the Bible as if it was directly downloaded from heaven, from God himself, rather than produced by human authors in different situations. One verse. One verse talking about inspiration. One verse out of 31,102 verses in the Bible. One verse. And yet, that sets the stage a lot of times for people, emphasizing the authority of the Scripture. Now, how many of you have ever seen a magic show where you've seen a magician have a top hat and they show you the top hat and it's empty and then all of a sudden they reach into the top hat and they pull out what? A rabbit, okay? They pull out a rabbit. Now, magicians know some of the tricks there. If the audience is far enough away, that rabbit is a stuffed rabbit with a spring in it. And they squeeze it, and it looks like it moves. Okay. Others have actual rabbits in the top hat, and how they do that uh, is a trade secret. We don't know how they do that. But what, I, what we do know is that they always use a rabbit. Have you ever asked yourself, why do they use a rabbit? Well, a rabbit doesn't make a whole lot of noise. Why don't they use a chihuahua? <laughs> it would give their trick away, right? So it's always a dove or a rabbit or something that would, can be quiet or easily manipulated with a sleight of hand. Now, when it comes to the Bible, many Christians are magicians. What I mean by that is let's say that the Bible is a top hat, and they know how to reach into that top hat and pull out a verse to their liking. They know how to reach into that top hat and pull out a verse so you'll submit. They can reach in there and pull it out and says, hey, you're a sinner, and you better do this, that, or the other thing if you're going to be right with God. In other words, Christian magicians know how to abuse the Bible one verse at a time, and they pull it out. Now, did you know, depending upon what you want the Bible to say, that you can find just about anything in the Bible if you want to 
pull it out a verse at a time. Take it from its context, take it from its culture, and take it from its set of circumstances. So Rachel Held Evans, before she passed away, uh, in one of her books wrote this, and I'm quoting. If you're looking for verses from which to support slavery, you will find them. If you're looking for verses with which to abolish slavery, you will find them. If you're looking for verses with which to oppress women, you will find them. If you're looking for verses from which to liberate or honor women, you will find them. If you're looking for reasons to wage war, you will find them. If you're looking for reasons to promote peace, you will find them. If you're looking for an outdated, irrelevant ancient text, you will find it. If you're looking for truth, believe me, you will find it. This is why there are times when the most instructive question to bring to the text is not, what does it say, but what am I looking for? What am I looking for when I open the pages here? Am I looking for justification for my actions or my prejudice? Am I a Christian magician simply trying to misuse the Bible one verse at a time? So I want us to think, and in your handout there, you'll find an outline that I just want to mention a couple things. Let's come back to 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. So the nature of inspiration is up for debate. And what I mean by that is a lot of different Bible teachers and theologians are trying to figure out what Paul is trying to say when he says all scripture, and incidentally, the all scripture that Paul is referring to here is the Old Testament. The New Testament is not done at this point. So the Old Testament, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for these various things that have been mentioned, for righteousness and training and rebuking, and all these different things that uh, he mentions here. So there's a word that is used here, and it is a unique word that is used in the New Testament. It's theopneustos, and theos meaning God, neustos meaning spirit. In other words, God uses his spirit to breathe on these uh, scriptures, and it is supposed to help us by thinking about Adam. Do you remember when Adam was created, God breathed on him, it says. And he, was, he becomes animated, he comes alive. So this spirit is breathing upon the text in a way that it comes alive. And when it comes alive, it becomes useful for people that engage with it. There are two dynamics that take place in inspiration. And these two dynamics are very important to keep in mind. One is, the Bible is about pe uh, people. People doing people stuff, including writing from their own perspective. That's important to keep in mind. The author has a perspective that is grounded in his own day and age. The other one, though, is the Holy Spirit is this... Um, genius that is at work that weaves together this long and beautiful and cohesive redemption that keeps pointing to Jesus. It goes back to our scripture reading earlier. How does these scripture prepare us for Jesus? How does this scripture 
illuminate Jesus in some way. So if you can keep those two things in mind, I think that you will find that you have a pretty good handle on what inspiration is. Inspiration is not a direct digital download from heaven. It's people engaging in their times. It's people engaging with their circumstances. Now, inspiration then has to do with something that allows God's children to tell the story. And that's why you will hear different voices in the Bible. It doesn't take long before you realize that it says something here, and then it says something almost completely opposite later. Why is that? Because the Bible is a process of people's thinking over a course of time. And you need to recognize that process. And if you don't, here's what's going to happen. You're going to look to someone, a pastor, a theologian, a priest, whatever it may be, that can iron out all the contradictions. And usually there will be people that will develop some type of hermeneutic or system of interpretation that then takes the difficulties of the Bible, irons them all out, and say, see, it fits perfectly together. Well, you've just taken away the human element of the scripture because you've said that it has been digitally down to, downloaded and it bypasses the human element. So, as I close this morning, I want to suggest a few things of what you shouldn't do with the Bible, and then maybe a couple of things of things that you can do with the Bible. So, don't be a Christian magician. That is, reaching into the Bible and pulling it out one verse at a time because it's serving your purposes. Okay? Rather, be careful. And here's what you need to be careful of. What not to do with the Bible. Number one, and these are going to be quick. I'm going to go through them real quick. Don't make the Bible a history book. It contains history. It touches upon history, but it doesn't give us the full big picture of history. Does that make sense? It's looking at history through a lens. Now, in the Old Testament, here's the lens. It's all about the land, and it's all about the Davidic monarch. That's what the Old Testament is about. Preparation for the land, going into the land, and setting up a king in the land. Right? So, it contains history, their own history. How it relates to other history, though, is a bit vague. So you're writing a history of the United States of America. And as you sit down and you author a history of the United States of America, you're going to write the history very differently if, depending upon who you are. So if you are a white, rich person, you will write the history in terms of freedom. God gave us this land. Manifest destiny. That type of thing. But what if you're a Cherokee? What if you're an African? What if you're a slave? You'd have a much different understanding of history of, of this country than those that were in power at the time. Okay? Secondly, the Bible is not a science book. Don't make it a science. Because we often think that it's inspired, we think that 
when it does touch upon things of science, it's flawless. No, it's not flawless, it's limited. They give to us a perspective of the way the world works in their day and age and in their time. They don't have telescopes, they don't have microscopes. Are you following what I'm saying? So don't make it a science book. It has limitations in those areas. You know, sometimes Christians are intimidated by science because they're afraid of what science might discover. And then how is it going to contradict the Bible? Well, the Bible is not interested in giving us any scientific explanations in a modern sense of the word. It just doesn't. So what Scripture gives us is inspired glimpses into mysteries that were unsolved back then. We've solved some of them because of the progress of civilization. Third, don't make the Bible an object of worship. When people hold up the Bible and says, the Bible says, you know, and then as if shut your mouth because the Bible says, it's almost as if God is Father, Son, and Holy Bible, not Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So don't make it an object of worship. It was not meant to be an object of worship. I believe the Spirit continues to do His work far beyond the last page of the book of Revelation. God is still speaking, and He's moving through His Spirit. Isn't it kind of ironic that the church, the early church, chose at a point in time to say, well, that's it, God's done speaking, book is closed, no more information from God, right? No, God is still alive. God's still working. But always remember where God is working, he's continuing to point us to Jesus. Just keeps continuing pointing us to his son. Number four, don't make the Bible a book of promises. It has promises, but not every promise in the book is yours. Okay? It was given to a specific group of people at a specific time. When God tells Joshua going into the land, I will be with you, all right? Then, all right, that's what he told Joshua at the time they were settling the land. But please don't make that a promise that anytime I want to conquer something, that God's on my side. No, sometimes God is not on our side, depending upon what our motivation is. Number five, this is big. This is really big. Don't make the Bible a weapon. Don't make the Bible a weapon. The Bible can be used as a pepper spray for people that you disagree with. Okay? Let's reach in. Let's pull out a verse. Let's spray people with it and get them in line. The truth is that people like to argue more than they like to love. People like to argue more than they like to love. Remember Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Love is always the bottom line. When you turn to the pages of the Bible, there's a lot of ammunition that you can use, but it's always a game of proof text. Can I get a better reference than you and pull it out of the top hat? There's not much that goes right doing that. If the Bible becomes a barrier to true discipleship by providing people loopholes to avoid Jesus, then you're misreading the Bible. And that leads to this last one. 
do not make the Bible a way to hide from Jesus. Sometimes people use their Bible. I don't like what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. So let me go to another passage of Scripture, right? I don't like Jesus saying, love your enemies. Oh, not, what about Joshua, right? I don't like Jesus saying, turn the other cheek. So sometimes people will use the Bible to hide from Jesus. And there's a lot of clever ways that we can do that. So then, what do we do with the Bible? Well, that's an endless discussion, uh, and I encourage you to consider reading a book. Dr. Pete Enns uh, wrote a book, came out a couple years ago, How the Bible Actually Works. How the Bible Actually Works. It's very readable, um, and I think he helps us, and I think three points are very important to take away. These are my three points, but there's a lot of similar information in this book. Number one, the Bible is a source of wisdom. Remember I said, James chapter 1, verse 5 says, If any of you lack wisdom, ask of God. He will give it to you liberally. Well, where do we get that wisdom? The scripture helps us to understand wisdom from God's point of view. Number two, the Bible is a selection of witnesses, both good and bad showing us how life works or how it doesn't work. The book of Hebrews reminds us that we have a great cloud of witnesses. Therefore, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles us. In other words, the stories that are in the Scripture enable us to see ourselves. Oh, I'm as foolish as Saul. <laughs> you know, I'm as power-hungry as David or... I, man, I've been as terrible a father as David, or whatever it might be. Thirdly, the Bible is a symphony of spiritual experiences. You've had your spiritual experiences with God. I have too. The Bible gives to us a symphony of people. Adam walked with God in the cool of the garden. Abram is called to leave journey and find a new home. Jacob wrestles with God. Moses encounters a burning bush. Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up. Ezekiel has a vision. James and John are mending their nets when Jesus calls them to follow. Paul is knocked off his horse, etc., etc., etc. So the Bible is full of witnesses on how to live life, and it's a symphony of spiritual experiences. So what I would like to do as we close, before we take communion, is to show you a video clip and this video clip comes from Pastor Brian Zahn, and it is so eloquent, it's a little bit dated, but I think it will give to us an understanding of um, how to read the Bible right. So let's take a look at it for a few moments, and then we're going to take communion. 